No, I, I mean, you know it's hard work, you know it's, it takes a lot of time, but it's enjoyable. I mean, you're getting a buzz out of it. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland. Life and business can be a roller coaster. So what better move after you've had some highs and lows than to build one? This is the Architects of Business, the Joe series that meets entrepreneurs with a lifetime of roller coaster stories to share with the world. Our programme is made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. I'm Ty Genwright and today I'm meeting Ray Coyle, the man who became Mr Tato and opened the gates to Tato Park. The team park was probably the biggest challenge I've ever had because it was the biggest risk. There was no amount of research could say that would come or not come. In the toughest of times, Ray's seen opportunities where others have not. I saw a guy down in Wexford raffling a boat. And I thought on the way back, if he can raffle a boat, I'll raffle the farm. <laughs> and learned that the best publicity comes cheap. Bertie Hearn done it for us. Uh, he called an election. So we put uh, Mr. Tato up for vote number one, Mr. Tato. Today we'll talk about success as well as failure, taking risks and raffling the farm. Uh, Ray Coyle, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. Uh, what's it like running a theme park? I mean, what are the things you didn't expect uh, about running a theme park that you're dealing with now? Well, uh, sometimes it can be the amount of people that come or the lack of people that come. It's very weather uh, dependent and uh, it's holiday dependent as well. But it's very exciting business. It doesn't feel like a business, like a hobby. Yeah. Um, I mean... You know, you started small and you've kind of grown it every year, haven't you? Or, or incrementally with, with new rides and new roller coasters and things like that. Uh, is it all your, your own kind of imagination in terms of where you go next? Or is there kind of themes in roller coasters? Oh, yeah. Well, we have a plan there where we'd like to be in three to four years' time. And this is our eighth season now, open up. So we're open seven, seven seasons done. It took two years to build or uh, get it started beforehand. And yes, we have a, a plan where, depending on the financials and how it works out, uh, where we'd like to be in 21. Uh, you know, it's almost like a metaphor for, for your own kind of career, isn't it? The roller coaster, because there's been highs and lows, I guess like there is in, in any entrepreneur's career. There certainly is. It is a metaphor. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, yeah, I've had lots of ups and downs uh, uh, over the 30 years or more that I've been in business. And the team park was probably the biggest challenge I've ever had because it was the biggest risk. Because when you uh, look at a piece of land in Mead outside of Ashburn and wonder about putting uh, infrastructure and buildings and all the rest of it into it, uh, would people come? Uh, and there was no amount of research could say they would come or not come, although it was well located uh, uh, for the north of Ireland and around Dublin. Uh, it still was, uh, not, I was in the middle of a recession too, so it was unbankable. So uh, we had to take uh, um, a chance, a real chance. And if it didn't work, uh, the place was only built for one purpose and it was uh, no good. So we put as much money as I could put together uh, in uh, the middle of 2008, starting 2006, 2008, 2009. And when I bought the Tato name, I had the opportunity of calling a great name because Tato was well known all over Ireland. Yeah. I was a good calling card. And the reverse was, if the part was successful, it would be great advertising and marketing for, uh, for Tato. 
So uh, a double benefit, I guess. You a double know. benefit, yeah. So, so you, you've obviously taken lots of risks down through the years. I, w- I want to get a sense of what it was in your, your very early years that uh, put you onto the path you're on now. Because you, Ashburn is, is home, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and you came from farming stock there. That's right. Yeah, my uh, father was a farmer and a local publican for a while. And uh, from uh, four or five generations in that pub. And uh, he was also farming. So... I started farming about 74 after coming back from the US and I hit it uh, extremely lucky just the way things happened. 75, 76, 76, 77 was a, a real a drought all over Europe and in England. There was none here in Ireland and I had an awful lot of potatoes growing and I made an enormous amount of money out of them. Uh, and then I continued with it and like all commodities you shouldn't and I proceeded to lose it all uh, then. People, people don't think about kind of you know farming as as, as a multi millionaire industry. This was because even in those days, potatoes were making three fifty pound a ton, uh, which was a lot of money. And how does it compare to now? I mean, I, I don't oh, know how much potatoes cost. Making, depending on the season, of course, about two hundred euro a ton. Right. Uh, so you're talking thirty an, years ago. Yeah. So, so that's, a, that's an enormous difference. Enormous difference. Yeah. And out of that, I managed to buy about. Uh, about 700 odd acres of land, pay for it, and uh, kept growing potatoes. And eventually, after the uh, the second good year, potatoes were 12 pound a ton, a disaster. So uh, I kept farming, as they say, until it's all gone. And uh, I uh, was in a bad place with the banks. I owed the banks 1.2 million, uh, then uh, two banks. And I put a a farm up for sale, and I was getting 265,000 for 365 acres in Bellistan. Mm-hmm. Uh So that wasn't near enough to cover. So I uh, saw a guy down in Wexford raffling a boat, uh, a 12-foot boat. Uh, I think it was 10 shillings at a time. There was 50 or 60 people in it. And I thought on the way back, uh, I was driving the lorry on the way back, uh, if he can raffle the boat, I'll raffle the farm. <laughs> so uh, we got uh, legal advice and all the rest of it. And uh, I... Uh, Coopers and Labyrinth at the time were the auditors and the solicitors held the money and we came up with the idea uh, which we set ourselves 4,000 tickets at £300 a ticket So do the sums for me quickly there At 4,000 at 300 is 1.2 million And that that was to cover your debts? Uh, that was to cover my debts and in 4 or 5 months I had sold the tickets and the draw took place in Goffs Mike Murphy drew the winning ticket uh, the banks got the money and the guy got the farm and I got started then in a very modest way at Main Crisps what a what a spectacle that must have been. I mean, were there people telling you you were utterly mad at the time? No. <laughs> or, or, or a crazy genius? <laughs> no, I, I, nobody would ever say you were a crazy genius or you're utterly mad. They just looked. Uh, and anyhow, it caught on. It was one of those things that caught on. It was the first lottery that really was running the country. And then everybody wanted this 365 acres of land. Nobody wanted the second, third or fourth prizes. So uh, they were invited to go down to Goffs if you bought a ticket. So about 4,000 people turned up, with, uh, not all the ticket buyers, but people with their partners, etc. They got a drink and uh, uh, the ticket was drawn. So you put on a show for them. I yeah. mean, what was it, Mike Murphy was there to do the draw? Yeah, Mike Murphy and uh, Daddy Cool, I think, and uh, Daddy Pops, I think, and then uh, Frank Keane. 
There might be a lot of Joe listeners who don't quite know who uh, Mike Murphy was, but he was a, a big cheese at the time. Yeah. I mean, um, it, it kind of almost represents, you know, how, but also the way in which he did it. And he created a real spectacle out of it. I mean, is that something that you well, think I has followed to, you throughout your I life? I wanted to sell the tickets. That was a, a, the essential thing. Because if I didn't sell the tickets, uh, uh, I was absolutely terrible trouble with the banks so I did and I'd done everything uh, possible to win the dress but the main prize being the uh, farm some people would, would have been mortified though to kind of end their career their farming career in that way and would 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 hate that idea that obviously didn't occur to you that is a very good point uh, because I, I well profiled in the mid 70s and people knew me because I grew a, a lot of farming it took me about Six, five, six weeks to swallow the pill and or the pride. And after that, it didn't matter. I had one job to do and was to get rid of all these tickets. So I got the P- uh, media were very, very helpful because you got a lot of uh, coverage free. Uh, uh, even BBC uh, interviewed me about these tickets. I was the first one to do it. So, yes, it was hard to swallow, but at the end of the day, I had to do it. I mean, contrast that experience with, I suppose, what you had when you were in the good years. And, I mean, there was a real difference because um, I understand you're, you're quite the... Were you quite the party boy at the, at the <laughs> in, the, in the potato boom years? Yeah, well, uh, I was 25, 26, 27, 28. So I had a good time. I was making lots of money. I'm working hard, but making lots of money. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, and then you went from one extreme of having a great lifestyle to having nothing and having to tell the whole country you had nothing. So that was uh, a difficult uh, step, but you get over it. So talk to me about the, the, the path then you did, you did follow. You went from growing potatoes to turning them into crisps. Yeah. Why did you uh, go down that road? Well, I used to grow potatoes for potato and I grew potatoes for peri crisps, mince crisps. Uh, their brands are defunct now. I'm per- uh, so uh, I was uh, in my farming time. Uh, I saw uh, that potato had eighty five percent market share on uh, of the market here, and I reckoned if I could get five six percent market share, I could have a nice small business. So I had a, a relatively good idea on how to make crisps. I researched it, and we bought a, a small cooker and we started off with eight people uh, making chips in Ashburn. And I mean, with eight people and a cooker, I mean, how many bags were you, were you churning out and what, what, kind of, what kind of markets were you able to serve with? Well, we were able to go to uh, all the markets, but I mean, the volume was so very low and uh, it was awfully hard to sell it. So the first week we sold about 300 boxes of crisps and it grew slowly from that. It's not, it's, you have to work at everything. Uh, so uh, we had a brand called Cottage. And, and Super Quinn, uh, Fergal Quinn, actually saved the business because he uh, gave me uh, Triff Crisps, his own brand. Mm-hmm. We made them for him, and that really was the thing that kept us going. Cottage was a disaster. I bought the Perry name. It was out, closed down. And I started to get some traction because Perry was no... Recognisable. Yeah, yeah recognisable, yeah. yeah. It must have been a big deal taking on Tato because didn't Tato invent cheese and onion? Isn't yeah, the, the story is that John Murphy uh, in 1951 uh, made a mix of uh, cheese and onion and uh, that's where it started in Ireland anyhow. Uh, so yes it was, but um, uh, about uh, two, uh, let me see, 
214, 215. I, I have buffaloes. I keep buffaloes as a hobby. As and also commercially, uh, they're the American bison. Uh, so uh, we, uh, we sort a certain amount of them every year. But uh, we decided because we had uh, bison and a lot of people were interested in them uh, in the media, we bring, bring out a buffalo flavored potato chip. Okay, and how did uh, that? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you in a secret here, Ray. Yeah, that was my favourite hunky dory. <laughs> well, what happened was uh, we took them out. They started a bit slowly, uh, and uh, people would ask me, uh, well, "What do you do?" Especially young kids. Uh, I said, "Well, we kill a buffalo every week, <laughs> and we uh, uh, emaciate the meat, dry out the meat, and then uh, chop it up and put it on the crisps." Mm. And the kids are looking at us, "The buffalo, real buffalo." Uh, of course it's not. Kerry Foods made, uh, have made that flavour for me and it was a blend of a whole heap of spicy ones. But the buffalo's on the front of the pack mm-hmm. and uh, a storyline is about the herd of buffalo in County Mead. Went very well. So are they vegetarian friendly? Uh, I don't think there's any meat in it. Anyhow, <laughs> I doubt it. I uh, doubt if there's any meat in it. I mean, was it scary take, taking on Tato as you were at the time? I mean, that brand, which as you said, has... 85% of the market at the time. There were there were barely any other crisps. I never thought of it that way. Uh, I, I, I thought uh, of it a little differently, that anybody with so much market share is going to lose a little. Uh, and if he's going to try and put you out of business, he'll have to sell his 85% at a very cheap price to put you out of business. So I feel if I could make a good product, present it well, uh, there was room for us. So you clearly knew the power of a, a strong brand because uh, you, you bought Perry, isn't that right? What, what did you do with it to try and kind of well, start making more we, of an impact? We put it into foil packaging. We redesigned the packaging, put it into foil packaging and uh, we did a good job in a presentation. Taylor were in poly, uh, pro, uh, polyethylene at the time. So uh, that made it look well on the shelf and I suppose the trade, uh, being the grocery trade, supported me because uh, being a very small uh, factory and they have been who they were, they gave you a chance uh, to get on the shelf. What do you think was your biggest breakthrough moment? In? With, uh, with, with your, the beginnings of your crisp-making career. I suppose the, uh, the breakthrough was uh, getting to buy the Perry name and then the Sam Spud's name uh, in Donegal. Uh, that started to give me a bit of traction. And then uh, the next step was Hunky Dory. Uh, I wanted to sell crisps into the UK and the, a lot of British people, including ourselves, say Hunky Dory, it's Hunky Dory, or Okie Dokie. So I chose uh, Hunky Dory and we started making them and that caught on. So that was your first kind of uh, brand that you really, powerful brand that you created from scratch. Yes. And, you, and we still see it obviously in supermarket shelves and That's in, right. you know, yeah, yeah. It convenience does, it store well. shelves today. It does well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what what kind of techniques do you remember putting into play with with, with that? That to really kind of to grow it and to make an impact. Well, again, it started very slow. Uh, uh, we nice packaging design, which you still see today, and uh, we uh, because we didn't, didn't have a lot of money, specialised or really put forward guerrilla marketing uh, to support the brand. And the best one we done was the ladies playing rugby. Uh, I don't know if you remember that or not. I think I do. Why don't you describe it, though, for those who don't remember? Okay, the, the ad was made in Miami because uh, nobody wanted to really do it here. So uh, we had this uh, very well-known photographer. He does Sports Illustrated. And he gets uh, a bunch of very attractive-looking women togged out in rugby gear. And uh, they uh, 
endeavour to play uh, uh, all the various positions in rugby. So there was one particular one, a Brazilian girl, and uh, she's taken a kick at goals, and she is um, uh, very pretty, uh, a lot of decolage, and she's uh, taken a kick at, at the goal. And the tagline under uh, the 48 sheet for alongside the road was, "Are you looking at my crisps?" And no red-blooded man in <laughs> Ireland is looking at our crisps. So, and underneath it was, "Proud sponsors of Irish rugby." Uh, and w- were you sponsoring Irish rugby at the time? Of course. Oh, okay. Yeah, Navin Rugby Club. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, IRFU didn't like that. Right. Uh, because we weren't a major sponsor, so that uh, created a huge uh, amount of reaction. And the brand rose by 22% on uh, the back of that. And sometimes p- picking a fight like that can, can really pay off, can't it? Yes, but it has to be discreet. It has to be, you You have to pull back. And the, it's not totally winnable. There's some people going to be offended by it. Uh, any guerrilla marketing uh, is, is as you have to find a way of focusing on something that's going to get talkability. So is that when you kind of realise that you, you could do this and you could take a, a relatively modest investment and turn it into a, a bigger splash? I mean, I, what I'm talking about is the approach you took whenever you, you took over Tato. And that the Mr. Tato character who, you know, we've all known on, on the bags for, for, for donkey's years, suddenly got a personality. Uh, yeah, that's right. When we got Tato... CNC sold it, and uh, they had were losing about 2.5 percent average uh, market share per year against Walkers, and uh, it was every year it was happening for about six, seven years, and uh, they decided they wanted to exit that part of their business, and they put it up and sold it. So uh, I got it, and I got it because uh, it was very easy to borrow money in those days and all the rest of it. So. Uh, then we sat down with a lot of agencies in Dublin, all the good ones, and I couldn't find something that uh, I thought was really right for it that would create a, a big buzz without spending masses of money. So uh, Bertie Hearn done it for us. Uh, did, he, did he realise he was doing it? No. Uh, he called an election in uh, 2006, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a very fractious election. So we put uh, uh, Mr. Tato up for vote number one, Mr. Tato. <laughs> And two buses went around the road with teams of people putting up the posters. And Frank, uh, Father Jack. The Father Ted fame. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He passed on, unfortunately. Lovely man. Yeah. There uh, only last year. So so he was the wingman for Mr. Tato. So uh, we got endless interviews. Uh, about, uh, we put an ad on to about uh, what he would do if he got into power. His uh, plan, his manifesto. Yeah, the whole thing, and uh, that went down. It was a skit, so that was the first one that really worked. And the next one was uh, Mr. Taylor looking for a wife uh, because he was a man of fifty-four or five years of age, wasn't married, and uh, we had done that. And I think we got about four hundred thousand applicants for a potential wife. Some of them blue, some of them not so good. Uh, but it was a creative star, and the final one, and the best one, was this autobiography, Mr. Tato. It was in the bestseller list for four months before Christmas. And it was just uh, from when he was a kid. It's all written, uh, all obviously, a lot of it made up, but about the story about his life. It's still for sale at the moment, and that changed Tato's market share. Yeah. 
Fascinating stuff. Um, do stay with us, Ray, because still to come on The Architects of Business, we'll be getting Ray's thoughts on entrepreneurship and about laying the groundwork for Tato Park. You're listening to The Architects of Business on Joe in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Visit eoy.ie to find out more about the programme and this year's finalists. Get in touch. Mail us on thearchitectsofbusiness at joe.ie. So, Ray, do you think you're kind of... You can be born as an entrepreneur, or is it a skill that you are conditioned in or that you have to learn? I don't think you're born as an entrepreneur, but it depends on your personality and attitude. And are you uh, able or are you? do you want to take a chance on something? And do you want to follow through on something? But I don't think people are just born entrepreneurs or salesmen. Salesmen are, uh, are fairly gifted because not everybody can be a salesperson. Uh, but no, I don't think so. I think you drift into these things. Uh, maybe some people are very, very lucky uh, who know from when they're much younger what they want to do and follow through on it, but not not me. Is there a degree of blagging involved? Uh, there's a degree of real self-belief uh, in what you do and totally committed to uh, what, you're go- yeah, what you're doing and not giving up when the bad times and bad times do uh, in business do happen. When you look back, I suppose, on, on all the points at which you um, were, were taking those risks, you know, how hard were you working at that time? I mean, was life in any way predictable, 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, or is, is entrepreneurship a, a 24-7 uh, job. Okay, well, when the farming was a little different, but when you went into manufacturing crisps and growing the business uh, at a fair rate, that was consuming. That was really consuming time-wise. You were uh, uh, all around uh, uh, Ireland, into the UK. Uh, we built a factory in the Czech Republic uh, uh, when the wall came down. I thought that was an opportunity and elsewhere. Uh, so that was consuming, totally consuming. Uh, and it meant I was away from home an awful lot. Did it, I mean, how much did it feel like hard work? Because, I mean, whenever we have to work hard in our kind of, those of, of us in employment, you kind of feel like you're working for the man. But when you're working for yourself, does it feel different? It does. I'm sure because I never worked for anybody else before, uh, uh, except uh, m- myself. But... Uh, no, I, I mean, you know it's hard work, you know it's, it takes a lot of time, but it's enjoyable. I mean, you're getting a buzz out of it. You're really getting a buzz out of it. It doesn't feel like going into work. Like today uh, in Taylor Park, when I go back to it this afternoon, it will not feel like going to work. I'll go around, I look at certain things, and you see uh, people being there, having a good time. It's fun. It, that is fun. Uh, the potato crisp business was more focused and it was all about uh, shelf presence, margins and new product development. Were there any, ever any times where you kind of felt like the, the, you know, the, the cards were not being dealt in your favour and you know, the system was holding you back? Of course. Uh, I'd done a business over in Drawler which I told was going to be absolutely uh, powerful business and it learned me a big lesson too as well. Uh, it was uh, pre-cooked uh, potatoes with sauces on them called potato cuisine and I stayed at that for five years uh, and I poured a lot of money into it and eventually I just had to give up on it. I was uh, running short of money. I was, uh, I made some mistakes in the business on what way I pitched it and uh, eventually I said we were stopping. When I said that, that learned me a great lesson that 
uh, it's okay, it's a failure, but when you make the decision to stop doing something, you get a great relief out of it. You know that you weren't going any further, so we closed it uh, and moved on. Now that product is in most supermarkets 15 years later. So do you think you were ahead, yeah, of, ahead of your time? or Yeah, we were before our time. I, I saw it in the West Coast and in uh, the States, and we were before our time. And also we launched it at too cheap a price. Uh, so, uh, you know, does it make you wary about experimenting? Uh, obviously not, because you went and opened Tato Park. <laughs> no, I mean, oh, no, no, uh, it doesn't. I mean, obviously uh, not, I got my fingers burned, but if I've gone into something, uh, uh, some business or other, and I find it's not, it can't be turned around, I won't be, uh, you just have to stop it. There's no point in keep, for the sake of pride or something else, keep the business uh, going for for the sake of just having it. It has to has to work. So talk to me about the the time when that that light bulb went off in your head and you said, "Do you know something? I'm gonna I'm gonna build a theme park on the outskirts of Dublin, based on Tato crisps." Hmm. Well, we had Tato a few years then, uh, and uh, I wanted to do it with hunky dories. And make it more Western Indian type thing. So I was convinced, and I'm, it's not original. Uh, it's been done in the States, Ansbrugger Bush done uh, Bush Gardens, and there's a few other good examples around the world. So uh, the only difference between them and me is we had to start with a very modest, small park, and, and we didn't have the money to really throw into it. Uh, so it was, as I said, in the recession, and uh, People didn't think it was a great idea. I felt it uh, had a good chance of it working. We opened it at the wrong time of the year, in November uh, 2010, and it snowed, if you remember, uh, back uh, in 2010 to 11. Beautiful. Oh, that, that was bailout time, though, as well. It was I mean, bailout. You, you shouldn't open then. Yeah. Uh, we made a mistake in our opening time. So nothing happened whatsoever, and uh, the bills were coming in, had to be paid, and I said, this is a dead duck. It looks like it's going to work. Uh, uh, just run out uh, and at Easter time 2.11 people started coming in Easter holidays and uh, we got about 35,000 people in over Easter and that year uh, we got 244,000 in in 11 so we made money in the first year so cons- uh, as a consequence of that we've been reinvesting all the time more money and uh, equity and any of our profits in order to get it to a certain scale. There's not many uh, startups can claim to be profitable in their first year. No, but it's the first one I ever done that was profitable in the first year. So clearly it struck some gold. It did, yeah, because uh, I think people wanted, certainly maybe the recession may, might have helped a little bit because people wanted to uh, uh, bring the family somewhere, uh, although it was still modest enough, but uh, wanted to bring the families. They couldn't go to Portugal or Spain as much as they were used to. So bring them out to uh, the park. There was no team park in Ireland, and there still isn't uh, uh, at the moment. I'm not aware of anyone being built. Uh, but so we kept putting in the rides and trying to prove- uh, provide entertainment for people. It's one of those things. What do they call it? The, the, the kind of the lipstick index, where you know if you can't afford the holiday to, to to Spain or you can't afford the expensive dress, you'll take the family for a, a relatively cheap day out, or you'll buy yourself a posh lipstick. Is that the kind of... I would say take them for a better day out for less money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, now that it's doing so well, I mean, cast your mind back to the 
the naysayers and uh, you know what kind of conversations would you have with them now compared with what they were saying to you at the time well a lot of people would have uh, said to me don't do this that it's the wrong thing to do in a recession and uh, it's going to lose money etc etc more people said oh god maybe it'll work Raymond and then when they come back and say to me three or four years later we talked to a ad, you shouldn't have done it uh, I'd ask him, why didn't you tell me that at the time? Uh, so we didn't want to dab in your enthusiasm. So I'm pleased that it has worked. I mean, it, it, it is a success. It's still a very modest park relative to the, uh, the big ones in the US and, and in Europe, but it's growing. And uh, every year there's uh, more investment into it. Every three years there's substantially big investment into it uh, to lift it again. Uh, so we have our plans there now, as I said, three years, 21 of what we're going to do. And so you've got Tato Park, but, but you're not actually involved with, with Tato, the crisps anymore, no, the crisp maker. No, no, what, no. what happened there? Why, why, why did, um, why did that it end? Yeah. Uh, yeah, clearly, uh, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, uh, when I bought Tato, it cost 68 million to buy. And I had 40 million worth of debt. And I had an EBITDA of 12. So that's the history. Yeah. And how could you service uh, that debt? So Indusnack came in and bought 15% of the company. And that's a... Uh, uh, Indusnack is a, a big German multinational company in our business. Mm-hmm. One, of the be- one of the biggest independents in Europe. And they bought uh, 15% of it for 15 million. Uh, but they had a co- they put into the contract that they had a call every three years that they could buy another 25% of it if they wished at a fixed EBITDA. So the exercise is their option. And I was very disappointed, but I couldn't do a thing about it. It was a legal agreement. Uh, so I was very disappointed when I moved out of it a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, because after spending 30 years, uh, and that was a wrench there. But now I'm very pleased. I cooperate with them. Uh, uh, we hopefully will continue to use the Taylor name. Uh, we do good business with them, and we're across the road. And there's a visit to the factory included in the visit to... Mm. I mean, looking back, could you have done things differently? I mean, did you uh, foresee that ultimately one day the company would be taken out of your hands? No. You didn't realise that? No, I didn't. uh, But remember where we were. Uh, We're in the middle of one of the worst recessions. And I, uh, and that's part of, well, prior to that, I thought that uh, uh, we got to borrow nearly 100% of the money. I didn't think. I could have left it be. uh, And Tato uh, only came for sale twice over 52 years. So I d- decided to have a go. Uh, but uh, the interest rate was crippling as it was going up. Uh, and uh, I had to do something. So I had to find a partner. And my partner eventually uh, bought the rest of the company. Is it a cautionary tale for um, other entrepreneurs who kind of seek out that kind of investment? Kind of just be yeah, careful or they might... Like... It depends uh, on how well they're spread and uh, the chance and the risk they're taking. But what I did get out of it was uh, a great experience for nearly 30 years and money to build the park and uh, go into some other businesses. Talk to me about those other businesses. Where else are you putting your money these days? On a horse. On a horse? <laughs> well, I know you've always been a risk taker, but no. uh, anything more concrete than that? I don't go there. <laughs> I'm only joking you on that one there. No, uh, there's, there's uh, ones I, I could talk about is that uh, we do build uh, uh, some houses uh, around Dublin. Mm-hmm. And we bought, I bought the site some years ago, so they're 
valuable sites. So they're mid mid price houses, uh, twelve hundred to fifteen hundred square foot. So that's uh, been a good success. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a, a solid, predictable investment. It is. Anything a little bit more kind of uh, risky, a bit like the the, the Tato days? I'm steering you towards your your son farm. <laughs> oh yeah, you're sorry, Bay Point. Well, yeah, we have an application we made for a solar farm, and it's uh, 35 megabytes, which is quite a. a, a it's enough to do 14,000 houses. Uh, we got plan permission. Uh, it's appealed, uh, and. Uh, we have to wait for the appeal result at the end of this year. And then there's a few more uh, steps to go along the line. So if the appeal is successful and we get the grid connection, et cetera, et cetera, uh, we'll have it up and running in about two and a half years. Listen, there must be some people who say, you're, you know, a, a solar farm in Ireland where we're not exactly blessed with frequent sunshine. Mm. Why does it make sense? It makes sense because of the radiation. The measurements have been done by the biggest and the best uh, people in the business. And, uh, of course, it depends on what you get, the unit price you get for the electricity. I mean, if you don't get enough, you can't build the place. We do need natural, uh, more power, uh, renewable power. So in the UK, there's a lot of it. All over the continent, naturally, there's a lot of it. In the north of Ireland, there's two or three farms already. But there's none down here. The legislation has to be passed. Yeah. It strikes me you're a man who's who's always on the lookout for a new idea. Do you ever think about just kind of slowing down and uh, you know putting your feet up? No, I uh, know it's fun. Uh, we've one very very good one at the moment, uh, uh, and it may sound like a plug, but it's called Synergy. Okay. It's uh, kombucha. It's tea based. All right. And it's a, a, a really healthy, uh, it's organic, vegan, uh, 59 calories per bottle. We started three or four years ago with uh, Joe Murphy's granddaughter who set up Tato. Okay. And uh, we're making that. Uh, we're selling it well in, in the UK. And we're making it for, um, in the UK, we're in about 800 supermarkets. So that started from nothing to you. That's quite a project. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you find it hard to slow down? No, I don't. No, I'm not. Uh, hopefully, I'm not uh, sounding a little bit brash. But no, I enjoy what I do. And if there's something new or something of interest that you can minimise the risk at, I'd have a go at it. Is that, is that a trait of a successful entrepreneur or someone who just is not interested in putting their feet up and just wants to, oh, no, to go, people, go, go? Some people want to uh, take it easier. I have to, I have to do, I'm not getting any younger, so I have to do a little bit less, but I have to do it a bit smarter. Mm. Work smarter, not harder. Yeah. Is that a, a yeah, good yeah. rule to live your life by? Yeah, well, that's what you should do. Yeah. So listen, what, what would be your kind of key advice to anyone starting out today and hoping to, to match or at least mirror the path that uh, you've been on? Well, I'd advise him strongly not to follow my path. But if he wants to set up a business or she wants to set up a business or do something, uh, research it very well, uh, uh, try and get it well-funded and even uh, even more money than you think you need if you're able to do it, which is very difficult to do because you'll always run short of money you're setting up a business. Listen, why, why do you say you wouldn't want the advice them to follow your path? Sure, look where you are now. Ah, well, there's some ups and downs in mine, as you know. But you don't, don't you learn from the failures? Of course you do. Yeah, you learn from the failures. You're not going to repeat them again. Yeah. But anyhow, uh, where, uh, what I advise people to do is uh, if they really feel good about something, take the chance and not be afraid to take the risk. But don't expect everything to go really well in the first year or two 
and you have to make a sacrifice okay. real sacrifice Ray Coyle fascinating stuff thank you very much thank you lovely to have met you thanks very much for the interview and that's it for the Architects of Business for this week. Thanks to our guest, Ray Coyle, our producer, Patrick Hohey, and all of the production team here at Joe. Our programme is made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. You can go to their website, eoy.ie, to learn more about the finalists for this year. Don't forget, you don't have to miss out on future episodes of the Architects of Business. You can subscribe for free on iTunes, on your favourite Android podcast app, or you can watch the show on YouTube. And check out some of Joe's other podcasts while you're at it. We've got the Hard Yards on Rugby, the GAA Hour, and our movie review show, The Big Review Ski. Next week, I'll be talking to Michael Carey, the man who took the biscuit from Ireland and then brought it back. Do join me for that. Bye-bye. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland.